This is Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Come in, come, welcome, bonjour, welcome in. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School. It's time to have some edutainment about the history of cinema. Today, we're going to talk about one of the great movie stars of all time. But before we do that, I'm Alex Bonner. I will be your host, joined as always by the better host, Nicholas Souter. Super producer Brian Tepsch just took my gun away. He took your gun away. I... Because you shot him in the face with it one time. One fucking time <laughs> he's alive there's no more bullets we lost them yes it's a nerf gun if you're listening they're nerf bullets need to put this out there however i know where all my bullets are and the time he shot brian in the face with it was not hilarious wink <sighs> i still feel bad <laughs> like legitimately feel bad that's true brian wakes up screaming in the night nerf gun Something like that. You know, we never bring up the fact that he slammed a fucking fork into my kneecap after that. That is true. He immediately, he, had like, the, he, has he that, like, shot me in the face and then he fucking Sarah Connor'd me. It was impressive. He had that in his pocket. It was like a shiv kind of. Well, he always carries around a metal spork. That's true. He got it from the vampire wars. <laughs> Those are a weird vampire. It's the war. only way you were kill, they had a, the way, a, only way you kill the Van Helsings. Were they at a barbecue? <laughs> were you at a barbecue? <laughs> I don't know. This is the only time I get sporks. So really, yeah, kind of. You're missing out. Yeah, that's true. With how lazy America is, I am kind of surprised that the spork hasn't just taken over as the only thing we use. That you're just given a spork that has a little serrated edge on it, and just that's it's, it. Yeah, and then the other <laughs> edge is also a knife. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like so that it just is all the stuff, and then that way we're so lazy we don't have to pick up another instrument in order to eat. Welcome to our side podcast. America is so lazy. <laughs> we can get into that. Yeah, but we're not going to. We're not going to because we have one of the great movie stores of all time to talk about this evening. His name is Kurt Vogel Russell. He was born March 17th, 1951. He is Wait, when's his birthday? March 17th. Fucker. <laughs> he should have been born two days later. <laughs> That's so true. Why would that be different? This is my birthday. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know what, though? Wyatt Earp was born on my birthday. Interesting. Well, it's very close to Kurt's. And Glenn Close. And he played Wyatt Earp. And Bruce Willis, who hasn't given a shit in two decades. Mm. Is that crazy? I don't know if Bruce Willis ever gave a shit, to tell you the real he truth. He did. I, don't know. I think he might be like one of those parrot people where if a director tells him to give a shit, he gives a shit. And if they don't, he just is like, no. <laughs> yeah. That uh, one fat guy told him to give a shit and he didn't. And then yeah. all these other people haven't. Yeah. If you're a listener, you have heard us talk about a movie called The Last Boy Scout, which we will not talk about. And he oh, had a man. lot of thoughts I, when he made that movie. And they were not good thoughts. You know what would have made that movie better? If it Anything. wasn't made or if it did get made. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Ooh, I mean, we'll get into that. The fact that Kurt Russell has come in to save a lot of movies that were cast for other people and then they couldn't do it. And then they said, you know, it'd be good. He really has made a career of saving movies. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But just we're going to do our usual gambit. Nick, what was the first Kurt Russell movie you remember seeing? Overboard. Interesting. Because we had just gotten cable. Yeah. And when we finally turned off MTV, Mm. 
we put on uh, HBO <laughs> and it was like, oh, hey, look, it's that Goldie Hawn movie. And then it was like, oh, look, it's that Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell. That family is as white trash as we are family <laughs> movie. And it was, uh, you know, <laughs> looking back at it now, his intentions <laughs> and his actions. We'll get into that. It's a movie that wouldn't be made now or they did try to make a stupid remake of it. But yeah. Yeah, he does kidnap a woman and then she falls in love with him because of Stockholm Syndrome or something. But at the same point, he's such a mega charming actor that it kind of works. I had this thought in my head today when I was driving the work fan. It was like, I should drive off the road. But then I didn't because I was like, no, Kurt Russell is... One of the greatest like movie stars yes. of all time. He's a great actor, but he's also just a straight up fucking movie star. He's like if Tom Cruise was an actual human being. That's an interesting way of putting it. Tom Cruise wishes he had Kurt Russell's hair. He wishes. Yes. There's an element where I would make the argument that Tom Cruise is maybe a better actor because he is able to mimic himself into just how cool Kurt Russell is naturally. He's had to try real hard to do that. I think he is. And he hasn't gotten there. <laughs> a possibly better actor because when Kurt Russell plays a tough guy, he's capturing the essence of being tough. Yes. Where Tom Cruise is always holding back from choking the closest person to him. I agree. I would not want to fight Tom Cruise because of his Scientology powers and because of because he's probably an actual sociopath who would do anything in order yeah. to not like die or lose i wouldn't want to fight kurt russell because i was like do it mccready and then he set me on fire i'm like this is so cool put me out but but by the same token tom cruise is what four foot nine something like that so he is four eight and a half so you may actually be able to sort of hold him while he struggles it would be like fighting warwick davis (laughs) i would but with a, a much larger head based on the end of return of the jedi that may not go the way you think it goes okay those ewoks are dangerous, all right? But I do agree that Kurt Russell is one of those guys, before we get into it, where when I listen to him in interviews, I genuinely don't think Kurt Russell takes shit from anybody. I don't think, if Kurt disagrees with you, he's going to tell you. There's you know cool- what, though? One mm-hmm. time, I was at that steakhouse downtown, and it was at a table, and I saw Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell having dinner, and they brought Kurt Russell the wrong side vegetable and they were like he had a conversation about it and he goes you know what i'm not gonna say anything well that's, and then he just ate the asparagus that's and I, then when i was in the men's room i don't think he was in the next about. journal over and he goes you always forget you had asparagus till you go to the bathroom i was like that's so true that's weird and then, <laughs> and then he asked me to uh he's like am i supposed to tip you i'm like i'm not the bathroom attendant and they threw i'm, cash I'm here you. eating he said here you like this <laughs> That's an interesting story about the time you got molested in a bathroom. You're going off in a direction that was not <laughs> that everyone's mind went to. Okay. <laughs> what happened to you in that bathroom? If two men start up a conversation at a urinal. Of- Is that not natural? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's uh, called community, Alex. Maybe. Okay. All right. Well, I'll have to remember that next time. Remember that Bring next- up a conversation. <laughs> Just start up conversations with people. At the urinal. You got it. I will do that from now on. Is that on. not normal? Okay, the story was fake, obviously. <laughs> but this is a real question right now. It depends. I think at the bar, it's a little different because everyone's like kind of hammered and uh, you just are going to start conversations randomly. Do but you it, think I could go out into public and not be hammered? If I was in like a 
TGI Fridays or something. And why would you be there? Okay, that's a weird one. But I'm just what's saying, wrong with you? I'm just saying, if I was at a bathroom of like a restaurant and a man started talking to me, I'd be like, "What is happening?" What if it was Kurt Russell? That's making different. a joke about his piss smelling asparagus. That would be an honor. You, I'd this, be honored. I would be. I, would I say, don't believe I'm you. honored, sir. I, I'm honored. My fake story has got run into the ground. <laughs> I'm so upset. Kurt Russell was born. What was the March first 17- Kurt Russell movie you oh, saw? Uh, I actually think it might be Overboard as well. Okay. I think I remember. <laughs> I think I remember my parents renting Overboard on VHS from a vending machine that rented VHS tapes, and I remember Goldie Hawn's butt in it. And even as a child, being like, I think that's pretty great. I didn't have the element of like being into girls or anything yet, but for some reason I was like, when you see Goldie Hawn's butt in like a thong in a one piece, Mm -hmm. I was like, I think this is something I like. And also I just found it very charming. I found the whole movie charming even as a kid. And after that, it was a little while because then my mom was a big tombstone fan and we could talk about that, which we will, but we've got on the line. Do you want to talk about it now? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I think we should just talk about his life just a little bit, and then we can get into his main thrust, because once again, we've chosen an actor who has, I believe, 7,000 film credits. But I'm not going to lie. I haven't seen any of these fucking movies when he was a kid. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about it just real quick. As we said, he was born in Massachusetts, but he grew up in California. His father was Bing Russell. That's big because Bing Russell was a fairly big character actor. He was on tons and tons of TV shows and movies. He was in Shane. He was a cowboy actor. He was a terrible search engine. That's true. Bing is not good, but his dad was pretty cool. And weirdly enough, Kurt was a Vunderkeen. Even as a child, he was an amazing baseball player. We'll talk about that a little bit. He's even said that that was really what he wanted to do. He did acting because he kind of fell into it because of his family. But he always, his entire childhood and his entire teenage years, trained very hard to be a professional baseball player. That was his dream, much more than being an actor. And we will go over, because I have not seen a ton of these movies, but in the early 60s, he was in a lot of TV shows. He was in The Man from Uncle. He was in Our Man Higgins. He was in The Travels of Jamie McFeeters. Whoa, was he? Yes. He guest starred in an episode of The Fugitive. I don't care. He was in The Virginian. All of these are shows. This predates me. The only one I will bring up, as I said to you earlier, on Gilligan's Island when he was a teenager, he played Jungle Boy, who was a feral, weird boy who lived on the island who would show up sometimes. And I would watch episodes of Nick at Night and be like, that's Kurt Russell. Okay. When, uh, When he was at the urinal next to me, he said, Tonight and Nick at Night, they're showing my old episode of Hawaii Five-0. You should check oh, it out. Oh, that's interesting. I like this fake story. It has its own mythos that's continuing. It's, gonna, it's the whole episode now. <laughs> it's escalating. Um, the how, longest how long were you guys in there? We were at the urinal for about 37 minutes. Okay. Okay. Interesting. In 1966, he got a contract with the Walt Disney Company, a 10-year contract. God. Yes. As a child actor. This is according to legend. In 1966, the last thing that Walt Disney ever wrote down on his notepad on his desk were the words Kurt Russell on a piece of paper. And then then Kurt Russell popped out of the closet and set him on fire. (laughs) And then they put his head in a frozen tunnel or whatever's going on. Yes, but apparently that is true. Apparently when they went into Walt Disney's office after he passed away, 
apparently he was thinking of Kurt Russell, I guess. Interesting enough. But Kurt then became the most profitable child star for the Disney company for the 70s. He was in movies like Follow Me, Boys, and Mosby's Marauders, and the one and only genuine original family band, which is the only one I've seen out of any of those. Little fun fact, Goldie Hawn was also in that, but they kind of didn't really meet on that. She was a dancer in that. And weirdly, that is in Licorice Pizza. They kind of based the movie that Cooper Hoffman was in in the beginning. He made some other Disney movies called The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit and Guns in the Heather. Have you seen any of these? No. He made a Disney movie that I did see called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes in 1970. That I've seen. Yes. Yeah. That was kind of the biggest of his Disney movies. It's about a computer, you guys. And uh, do you know what the tagline for The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes is? Any guesses? It's programmed for laughs. Oh, my God, guys. That computer's programmed for laughs. That's... I barely remember it. I remember the Joker from the old Batman TV show. Cesar Romero is in it. That's all I remember. If anybody's a huge fan of that, I don't care. He made a bunch more movies. He made some Disney movies. Now you see him. Now you don't. Charlie and the Angel and Super Dad. Nick, any of those movies popping out? Any thoughts? Uh, one of them popping out is the TV movie he made in 1970 Ooh. where he was the narrator. Dad, can I borrow the car? <laughs> Question mark? Yes. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. Are you, are you a big fan of that movie? Um, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of most of these fucking movies. The titles of movies in the 70s were amazing. Yes, agreed. And he was the big star at Disney. He was making all these movies. It's funny that I never really caught them, but I don't think they really stand up very well after the fact. A lot of those 70s kid movies. Movies like... The Bad News Bears would come out as a sort of response to those movies. Yeah. <laughs> Even in the 70s, people thought those movies were stupid. We just watched that, too. Exactly. But that was a lot. It's a lot, but it's very funny, and particularly funny if you consider it as like a fuck you to all those Kurt Russell cheesy kids 70s movies. These are the names of his characters in four movies in a row. Mm -hmm. Stephen Post, Johnny Jesus, Dexter Riley, and Ray Ferris. No one has ever been had names similar to this ever. No, but These those are all cheesy movie kid names. Those are fairly good if you're trying to like go on the run and you want a fake name. Like that's quick enough where people are like, what's your name? Uh, my name's Ray Ferris. They're like, yeah, eh, okay. <laughs> well, whenever I go on the run and like rack up bills, I'm like, what's the name for the tab? I go Brian Tepps. Yes. That's you're like, okay. Oh, I've taken out a lot of credit cards in Brian's name. Yeah. He does not know that, but there is a tidal wave. Of ruin. Yeah. When he Credit got his, wise, when they finally catch up to him. When he got his tooth pulled, I like texted him, like, what's your social security number? Oh. And he finally sent me the whole thing. I had two numbers that were off. I we're was, say I was right doing now, pretty well. His social security number is 420-6969-666. That's one digit off, but so what? Brian's doing the math on it. That's right. Well, what's funny is after those movies, he took a break because in the 70s, he was becoming a strapping young lad, a teenager, and he was becoming a very, very good baseball prospect. Also a crazy thing, if you've never seen a documentary that's on Netflix called The Battered Bastards of Baseball, have you ever seen that, Nick? No. It's really good. It's about his father, Bing Russell, buying a independent baseball team, which used to exist, and it was called the Portland Mavericks, and they put together this kind of weird ragtag team of children, no joke, like 17-year-olds and washed-up MLB players, 
And they did very, very well. And they took on everybody. And Kurt was the, the second baseman. And he, from that, got a chance to play double A ball. He was the number one hitter for a year in the Texas league, which was a double a baseball league. He was getting moved up to salt Lake, which was triple a, and he probably was going to play for the California angels. He was a really great hitter, a really great fielder, but he collided with a guy as he was going for a grounder. And the guy ran into him on the base path and it tore his rotator cuff and his shoulder apart terribly. Uh, an injury that would not be as serious now with the surgery we have, but in the seventies, that was ruinous. He could no longer throw in the same way that he could before, and that effectively ended his baseball career, which, silver lining, because then he became one of the great movie stars of all time. So, Also, that guy that fucked him up, it was John Carpenter. <laughs> he did it on purpose. Yeah. He's from the future. I got a script. It's like the Kennedy assassination. He shot him in the shoulder from a distance. So after his baseball career tragically ends, he decides to go back to his fallback career, which is being a famous actor. And he goes back to TV. He's in an ABC series called The New Land. He's in a bunch of episodes. He's in a Disney movie called The Strongest Man in the World. A little fun fact at the time, though, in 1976, he was up for a movie called Star Wars. And for the super nerds who've ever seen the screen test, he screen tests pretty well as both Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. He talks about how in some interviews about how he had no idea what the hell he was saying. He's like, I don't know about what a Death Star is or a Millennium Falcon or some shit. But George Lucas liked him a lot, and he was basically right there to be Han Solo, and he got offered. There was a cowboy series called The Quest on television, and he was offered it as the lead, which was the first time he'd ever been offered that. And he asked George Lucas if he was going to get the part or not, and George Lucas said, literally, I'm not done casting. I do like you, but I'm just not sure. And... Kurt Russell decided to take the TV show. Hey, Alex. Yeah. When are we going to do an episode on George Lucas? Well, that's an interesting question. Maybe go back in time to our George Lucas episode. We did a George Lucas episode? We did several. We did 30 of them. Wow. You know what else? We should probably do a Harrison Ford episode. Mm, the guy who got the role by building a door. Yeah. <laughs> you guys like this door? But in 1980 is when... In my opinion, really, his mega movie career begins because in 1980, he made a TV movie where he starred as Elvis in the film Elvis. Now, why this is important is because even Kurt Russell said that at the time there was an up and coming director named John Carpenter who directed this TV movie about Elvis and John Carpenter did not want Kurt Russell. <laughs> he got kind of saddled with him, but as the kind of Disney star. It was not who John Carpenter was envisioning, but they quickly became friends. And yeah. they talked about how not only did they become friends, they became absolutely kindred spirits in how to make films. Uh, smoking a bunch of reefer. Oh, uh, absolutely. Smoking weed, getting drunk on beer. But also it's interesting. Kurt Russell talks about how when him and John Carpenter are working together, Different than everybody else on set, John Carpenter will say things like, maybe, you know, just a, uh, just a little and kind of make a little hand motion. And then Kurt will go like a little, you know, just, uh, you know, mm, give him a little shoulder shrug. And they know what they're talking about. He's like, when you come around the corner, give him a little, mm, mm. And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said that him and John just quickly became like the best pals and they would hang out all the time, even outside of it. And when John had a new movie, he would 
call, even if he didn't think Kurt was right for any of the parts, he would call him and talk to him and go through the script and they'd hang out in his apartment and drink beer. So as we know, we talked about, have you seen that Elvis with? I saw parts of it and never saw the whole thing. I do know that uh, as that was the follow-up to Halloween, this doesn't make any sense. John Carpenter wanted to originally cast Donald Pleasance as Elvis. Yes. <laughs> he also wanted to cast Treat Williams, who was another friend of Kurt Russell's. And that movie, I didn't realize the timing. Treat Williams of the Substitute 2 and 3 series? That is correct. That is correct. And at the time... You know you're a terrible movie actor when you... When you're there to replace Tom Berger because he won't come back to a series. <laughs> that is very true. Also, I didn't really realize the timing of that Elvis movie, but it came out like a year after Elvis died. And Carousel said when it was going into production, they were making it. We didn't think Elvis was going to die. So it was also a little bit bad. taste. <laughs> and when Treat Williams said to him, because they were friends as well, he said, are you going to take this part if you get it? And Kurt, in the way that he thinks, he was like, I just take roles when people give them to me. He didn't even process the idea that maybe it would be a bad taste. But to Kurt Russell's testament, it was well-received, and he got a nomination for an Emmy for it. And it led to him starting to get bigger roles. In 1980, he was in a movie called Amber Waves, which I wonder if that's where PT got Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I know nothing about that. But in 1980, he also started a movie called Use Cars that was written and directed by a guy named Robert Zemeckis, who you may have heard of, who went on to direct quite a few things like Back to the Future and Castaway and Forrest Gump. Nick, have you ever seen Used Cars? Only on Comedy Central. (laughs) What do you think of Used Cars? It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember laughing, Mm. but I remember enjoying what I watched. Yeah. Zemeckis and Bob Gale wrote it and produced it. And they're good filmmakers, whether you're big, big fans of Zemeckis and stuff. Or you're me. Yes. But at the same point, it's not, they're not trash filmmakers. They usually make something of at least value. But I have not seen it in many, many years. I, it's Yeah, last time I saw it, I was in grade school. Yes. Their tagline on that movie was estimated laugh count, 287 city. 410 Highway. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's bad. But his buddy John Carpenter managed to option a script called Escape from New York. Woo! And the studio really wanted Charles Bronson. And no joke, John Carpenter brought his buddy Kurt Russell with him to some of the production meetings. And when they brought up Charles Bronson's name, Kurt Russell said, yeah, 10 years ago, that would be great. But I'm sorry, he's just, he's a little too old. And according to legend, some of the studio execs said, well, I don't know, what about you? And they kind of looked at each other and was like, all right, yeah, fuck it. (laughs) And they let them make, which is crazy because everything up to this, he's the Disney guy, right? He's the Disney guy who maybe has made a couple of comedies and Elvis. And for a major studio to allow a movie that at the time was a fairly decent budget for a sci-fi action movie, a guy who was a Disney movie star, it was very strange. I know we've talked about it quite a bit, but any just sort of takes jumping off about Kurt Russell, particularly as the beloved Snake Plissken? Uh, From here on out, Kurt Russell is Kurt Russell. Yeah, agreed. This is it. Yeah. Like, this is real shit. Escape from New York is fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's also a horror movie. Yeah. There's fucking people popping out of the floorboards and grabbing people down. 
it had a decent budget, but also at the same time, they stretched it out as much as possible. There's a scene in this where Kurt Russell just sits on a chair and it's captivating. Cause he's just like, <laughs> you seem like, fuck now. What do I do? I and just, he's just sitting on a chair. True. His smart ass in that is so good. Mm-hmm. President of what? <laughs> just that he is the ultimate, like, fuck you. Like whoever you are, screw you, man. Like whenever there was before this, or there was an action guy, an action hero, there had been a sort of terrible thing that had happened, right? The mafia had killed his family or it was a Western and the, his wife and children had been burned alive by the bad guy. Or, or if you're clean East where there's just black people in your city. <laughs> right. Asians. Depending. Yeah. And this, there's a mysterious anti-hero who had something bad happen to him in a war in the future. And that didn't screw him up like a vengeance thing. That, in a way, set him free, where he is now psycho. It just made his legend even grander. Yes. Like, he's got the eye patch, he's Uh, walking around, his old, like... He's limping. He's limping. The dude who used to be his commanding officer is still around, he's like, you're the best there ever was. He's like, yeah, I know, fuck you. (laughs) And you turned me into a monster, (laughs) and I'm around, bro. And they set him loose. And also, as you said, it's more of a horror movie. It's not truly as you would think of like goofy 80s Rambo action movies. Like it's subtle. It's yeah, there's action in it, but it's all none of it's preposterous. None yeah, of it's, it's not it's not like a guy who got popular in the 60s riding a tsunami wave. <laughs> We'll Nobody would ever that. do something it's that like stupid and literally jump the fucking shark <sighs> or surfboarded over it. We've talked about John Carpenter a lot. Please yeah. listen to our John Carpenter episode. We could talk about Escape quite a bit, but we should continue with Kurt. After that, he was a voice in the Disney movie The Fox and the Hound, which I remember. So in a way, maybe I remember that earlier, but I had no idea that that was Kurt Russell. In 1982, he teams back up with John Carpenter for, in my opinion, John Carpenter's most skillful movie. In my mind, maybe his masterpiece. As Nick referenced earlier, he plays McCready in The Thing. And he takes just on particularly the Kurt Russell performance in The Thing. Well, Metrograph recently did a Kurt Russell retrospective. Cool. And this like montage on their website and the Instagram. It's like really well-crafted, just like all these scenes of him. And like it's funny and it's action-packed and all this. And then I forget what the song was in the background, but the song stopped exactly at the point where he pours the drink into the computer oh, yeah. and curses at it. I was like, yeah, that's Kurt Russell. <laughs> the Thing is my favorite John Carpenter movie. Yeah. And it would work with someone else. But even if it worked with someone else, it wouldn't be the same as having Kurt Russell. Yeah, agreed. Kurt Russell is somehow the most level-headed person in an end-of-the-world apocalypse alien eating the people you know movie mm. to the point where you know he's paranoid and freaked out and creepy getting creeped out and like he's doing blood tests on cadavers to see what they are and he's so calm it's creepier than the alien almost interesting and it's like i don't know how someone can do that when like i had to go outside the other day and had a panic attack. So watching <laughs> Kurt Russell in that movie is like awe-inspiring, 
on a daily basis. I agree. I agree entirely. It's an amazing ensemble piece and him in it, as you said, being the sort of weird level headed one. There's so many good character actors in that movie. Yeah. Wilford Brimley and I'll uh, kill you. <laughs> I mean, it's and obviously all the special effects are absurd and it's an unbelievable, elegant piece of filmmaking. Yes. And as you said, he truly carries it. I heard an interview with him where he has some writing credits and he has some directing credits, but he talks about how he always just sort of liked more being an actor who had input. He even himself said it came from his baseball career where he never wanted to be the manager. He never wanted to be the general manager of the team. But when he was playing, he liked, you know, saying, hey, this guy always hits to the left field. He was always paying attention and he always was coming up with weird stuff. And supposedly a lot of that scene where he heats up the coil to hit in the blood, that was not really how it was written. That's more Kurt Russell being like, no, man, if I was here and this is happening, this is what I would do. And I would do this. And it's interesting that a lot of his ideas kind of are what make John Carpenter movies when, you know, like there, you can feel when Kurt is in one because there's that almost secondary side director to it. That's Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell had a theory, which I, I never had any ideas, but he really thinks about this stuff a lot. He had a theory. He was like, what if they've always been the aliens and the aliens have been here for a while and everybody already is the aliens and we don't even know that's happening. And some of the aliens are freaking out because they've even forgotten their aliens. I was like, what is happening? No, he did, he's been smoking too much weed. <laughs> I know. That's all but it is. When he was asked once of what the ending was, he was like, maybe that's the ending. Maybe we've already been aliens and we're already screwed. <laughs> I think he's just fucking with people. Yeah, I think that's maybe true. But I like that he's so thoughtful of all of his acting roles and that pouring the liquid into the computer. Like, what are we really? Are we a system? Are we ants? There's interesting things in the thing. And once again, we could talk about that forever. Uh, He continues to make a bunch of movies. His first Golden Globe nomination comes later for a 1983 film called Silkwood, directed by Mike Nichols, who, if you don't know Mike Nichols, he's one of the great directors of all time as well. He directed The Graduate, The Odd Couple, Death of a Salesman, where he cast a very young actor named Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mike Nichols is one of the great, great filmmakers in the history of Hollywood, and he really wanted to work with Kurt Russell. And he made a movie called Silkwood with Kurt Russell and Meryl Streep and Cher. And Kurt Russell sat down with Mike Nichols beforehand. He didn't even read for him. Mike Nichols said, hey, is there any movies I would know you from? And Kurt said, no, none of my movies. You'd never, <laughs> you never, you don't know any of my movies. And they hung out and talked for a little while. And then he left and he assumed he didn't get it. And then Mike Nichols called him and said, this character has to be truthful and you're the only person who answered any of my questions truthfully in any of those meetings. So Nick, have you ever seen Silkwood? I have not, which is weird because I've seen every movie Ron Silver has been in. Yeah. Ron Silva, act activist. (laughs) Also written by Nora Ephron, her one of her first movies. I remember seeing Silkwood in the nineties and it's one of those kind of eighties, sad, funny, it's a Mike Nichols movie. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's sad. It's funny. It's powerful. It's crazy shit. I would like to watch it again. But uh, Silkwood is kind of the first one where he gets to show some of his chops, his actual mega acting chops. And he holds his own with Meryl Streep and Cher. 
after that, he made a movie with the woman who would become his wife since 1983, a movie called Swing Shift with him and Goldie Hawn. Have you ever seen that, Nick? I have not. Yeah, sorry. There's some stuff in the mid-80s. We're kind of skipping over. There's a movie called The Best of Times in 1986, which he would star with his friend Robin Williams. Football uh, movie? Uh, yes. And also written by his good friend Ron Shelton, who will come back. I actually kind of like that movie a lot. That's a very nostalgic movie, but is fun. He's really fun in it. Apparently on set, he told Robin Williams, Robin, I'm going to have to stop laughing at some of your jokes because it's literally exhausting me. Like, I know you're hilarious, but, and you're going to say stuff to me and I'm going to have to pretend that I don't think that's funny. He had to explain to him that he had to like walk away because he was genuinely wearing him out. After that, he goes back with his friend, John Carpenter, and makes a movie called Big Trouble in Little China, which, once again, a lot of these films, a lot of Kurt Russell's films, were not big hits at the box office. No, The Thing was a giant bomb. Yes. Actually, we talked about this, I feel like I've said this repeatedly, The Thing and Blade Runner opened the same day. Yes, and... Escape from New York was a decent hit, but it was not released on a lot of theaters, and a lot of these movies were not hits, but as Kurt Russell talked about, he was a huge benefactor of the VHS revolution, Mm -hmm. because a lot of his movies are released in this moment where it is ubiquitous, there's a secondary market with VHS, and Big Trouble Little China may be the greatest example of this. It was a huge bomb when it came out in the movie theaters, and... What do you think of Big Trouble in Little China, Nick? Big Trouble is fun. Kurt Russell is great. The film is very well directed. It is a clusterfuck. <laughs> it certainly is. It is all over the place. It wants to do a lot of things. It does most of them. Mm. But they're trying to make a movie where it was like lore, you know, like mm. this big epic tale but he should have scaled it down and just made like <laughs> it turned out to be a very fun sure Kurt Russell movie. It just thought it was going to be, for lack of a better word, moral combat. Yeah, I agree. It, they also truly played it and wrote it as a comedy. And when you watch it later, I think in terms of comedy, it was a little ahead of its time. Later, we're going to hint at him the kind of other big collaborator with Kurt Russell in his career, but it was something that Quentin Tarantino would later do of like taking old Kung Fu movies and old grindhouse movies and making them into a secondary genre of an entire universe of these things. And I think in 1986, people weren't ready for that. They didn't really process that, but now people do. And Big Trouble in Little China, there's t-shirts you can buy and merchandise and of films that came out in 1986. It's probably, you know, one of those big weird hits after the fact, but in 1987, as we talked about, he finally has a big breakout in the movie theaters hit that makes a ton of money directed by the late great Gary Marshall, who we should also have an episode for at some point. Produced by Roddy McDowell, all kinds of weird characters starring primarily first Bill, his wife, Goldie Hawn. It is a movie called Overboard. We talked about it a little bit, but any other takes on uh, Overboard, Nick? 
I haven't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. When I watched it as a child, it was the first time I felt like the South Side was everywhere. <laughs> like I, oh, yeah. I, I was one of those people who was just like, oh man, oh yeah, it's just us. We're just the poor people. And then I watched this like, oh, dope. There's poor people everywhere. <laughs> Trying to scam people. <laughs> like him and that dude that's in Wayne's World. And then they're just like hauling fucking uh, fertilizer and shit. <laughs> like as like a night gig mm-hmm. to help pay the bills. I was like, oh, okay. So like it's always going to be rough. Oh, yeah. Unless you start a kidnapping scam yeah. on the seat of your pants. But then you fall in love with your kidnapping victim. And she saves your entire life. Yeah. This is basically if you took one of those Disney movies, he started in as a kid and said, what if I make it really problematic? (laughs) That's kind of true. Yeah. And also it had that late 80s thing where for people who don't, who weren't around or don't really remember in the late eighties, there was a big thing of dark comedies, dark comedies started to really right at that moment, have this really big thing of ruthless people was a big thing. Throw mama from the train. There was a lot of very funny, very weird, dark comedies that came out in movie theaters and were big hits. And overboard though was pitched as this lighthearted romantic (laughs) comedy. Like check out this romp. She doesn't know who she is, but he does. It's like, no, no, dude. But to their credit, it works more like it's one of the better It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episodes. Yeah, pretty much. It's a bunch of scumbags, rich scumbags, poor scumbags trying to screw each other over. And then they fall in love. (laughs) They're both scumbags. The gang gets Dennis and Dee a new mom. Yes, pretty much. Pretty much. Hey, look at these shitty kids. Don't you love them now? (laughs) Oh, man, I just referenced a Gronk video. Um, (laughs) The Army. Anyways, I do love that. No matter how bizarre and like just not cool mm. the kidnapping scheme is, yeah, the rich guy on the yacht <laughs> is still the bigger piece of shit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also watched it fairly recently, probably about a year ago, and I definitely laughed a bunch. I genuinely still was like, this movie is funny. Gary Marshall is still a funny director. All of these people are still very funny performers. It's a comedy, all right? I understand it's not a movie that would come out now, but you got to remember the zeitgeist at the time. Dark comedies were the thing. Coke was wearing on people. They had been addicted to Coke for like 15 years now. I blame Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Also, Ronald Reagan had dive-bombed the entire country. Yeah, it was a whole thing. After that, in 1988, he teams up with his good friend, a guy named Mel Gibson, and... Michelle Pfeiffer and make, in my opinion, a really cool Robert Town film that is still kind of badass to watch. It's called Tequila Sunrise. Nick, any thoughts on Tequila Sunrise? Never got to do it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I haven't seen it since the early 90s, whenever it was on HBO. And I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> I remember it looks so good. It looks good, but here's the main problem. Yeah. Kurt Russell's hair looks like shit. <laughs> Which is weird. It's yeah, they so weird. give him a buzz just, cut. It's and it's slicked back. Yeah, it's real bad. Like he has a buzz cut in soldier. Yeah. But it's but still soldier's lo- kind of dope. I it's like kind of dumb too. I kind of like soldier. We'll talk yeah, about it. <laughs> Brian, take over. Talk about soldier. <laughs> no, right. I, in all fairness, I have not seen 
Tequila Sunrise in a long time. It just didn't grab my uh, interest as a child. You're right. Tequila Sunrise, it's like a kind of heist movie. And it got mixed reviews when it came out, but the budget was $20 million and it made $110 million. Yeah, I mean, back-to-back the hits. three of them, yeah. of course. Yeah. And so Kurt was now kind of a real movie star. Truly, I know he'd been around forever. He'd been, as he declared it, he had been a famous actor for a while. He was never like a profitable movie star. He was Snake Plissken, you know, what's under the eye patch? Is there a laser beam under there? And he, after that, made a movie in 1989 where (sighs) his buddy Patrick Swayze had dropped out a John Peters, Peter Gruber film directed by someone named Andre Konchanilovsky starring Jack Palance and Sylvester Stallone. It's called Tango and Cash. Damn it. I'm going to be smart and wear glasses. That way people know I'm the smart one. <laughs> I'm going to shoot in the tank and cocaine's going to fall out. <laughs> what? Why would you do that? <laughs> you, you know, there's this thing in the back. Yeah, it looks cool. Uh, there's a gun, this head and the glasses, and there's a shoot thing. And there's, uh, 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 it's like, excuse me? <laughs> That's pitch perfect. Andre Konchanilovsky filmed about two-thirds of it, then was fired. <laughs> By Sylvester Stallone, and then Albert Manginoli and Peter McDonald. After that guy got fired, there were three directors on that movie. Plus Sly. Plus uh, the real director. Yeah. Yeah. John Peters also. I don't know if you guys know this. John Peters, a bit of a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And it was released by Warner Brothers, 1989. It got super mixed reviews, but budget 50 million made 130 million. Yeah. So... Tango and Cash, still to this day, there's a lot of movies that came out in the late 80s that would be difficult to find on Blu-ray. Tango and Cash would not be one of them. That is no. still around. They are actually, uh, if you, at Native, is the only reason why I'm glad this movie exists. Because <laughs> there is a drink called the Tango and Cash, and they serve it to you on a DVD as the coaster. <laughs> because those are easy to acquire. Yes. I just remember him and Stallone trying to out hair and out muscle each other in that movie. And that was the only thing I sort of remember was that even though Stallone was supposed to be the more muscular dude, that even as a kid, I was like, Kurt Russell looking better than him. Yeah, because Stallone <laughs> looks fake. Yes. He's not an athlete. No. Kurt Russell was an athlete. Yeah, an actual so he looks a like professional an athlete. athlete. Where Sylvester Stallone, you know, no offense to former porno actors, but he looks like he used to do Doo-wop porn singers. and then he fucking got jacked to be in a fucking Rambo sequel. And uh. he looked like, yeah, exactly. I fucking hate <gasps> this movie so much. Oh my God. It is so stupid. I remember watching mm-hmm. this as a kid. And just being like, oh, I should go to bed. This is terrible. I'm wasting my time. I like that in the movie, they have like the Batman thing where the newspaper as a transition like spins at the thing. I was like, no, not in a movie. The fuck is this? Yeah, it's pretty stupid. Also, I got to say, the guy works with big direct, not Andre Kosinolovsky, but like he works with Mike Nichols. He worked with Robert Zemeckis. He worked with John Carpenter. It's like he worked with John Peter. And then in 1991, he worked with Ron Howard. He works with Ron Howard in, if nothing else, one of the more fun Chicago movies of all time. A movie that also, if not overboard, the first one where I really, really as a child processed Kurt Russell 
because he played both his dad, who dies at the beginning, yeah. spoiler alert, and the son, who, spoiler alert, dies, later dies the at the end. It is a movie called Backdraft. So, Nick, real fast. Yeah. When are we going to do an episode on About Ron Bi- Howard's brother? <laughs> I was going to say Billy Baldwin. Oh, fuck that shit. <laughs> Although at this point, he is the safest Baldwin to bring up my name. That is true. Yeah. I still sometimes watch Backdraft. I find it very fun in a weird way. It's trying to be so dark. It's so hard hitting. But it comes across as nonsense. I was like, these are more attractive firefighters than I've ever seen in Chicago. Eat that Chicago firefighter. Yeah. Also, like, where, like, there's at least one fat guy in every unit. <laughs> like, one old fat guy uh-huh. who, like, goes out on the call, doesn't leave the truck. He looks like somebody who knows the best recipe for, like, chili dogs. I agree with that entirely. Yeah, old firefighters definitely know where you can get amazing Italian beef. Exactly. They they know, and they will argue with you, like, no! You can't go there. Byron's bullshit! Like, Jardinera is terrible. (laughs) I think it's fine. You're an idiot. And something I always remembered was at the beginning, when he plays his own father, he has the old Chicago accent, and then when he plays the middle-aged son, he has the baby boomer Chicago accent. And I always appreciated that Russell did that on purpose. Like he yeah. was such a nerd and pulled it off so well. And if you weren't around for this, this was a true summer release, huge Imagine Entertainment, Ron Howard, Brian Glazer, Grazer, excuse me, like they were swinging for the fence. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee, Rebecca DeMornay, Donald Sutherland, and Bobby De Niro are in this movie. Really, I really like De Niro in this. I do too. And um, uh, Sutherland. Sutherland. I liked him. Those scenes together is super creepy. Oh, yeah. This movie is the exact, like, it's the yin of the yang that is Big Trouble in Little China. Little mm. tr- Big Trouble in Little China is a straightforward comedy that mm. works as an action movie where this is supposed to be a straightforward drama, but it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's very like, true. <laughs> all the firefighting scenes. Uh, they're kind of good. They're kind of good, but they don't work. Yeah, they're kind of the fire effects are really yes. genuinely powerful and terrifying. But then what happens with them where you're like, yeah. this is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And I did appreciate it reflects a Chicago that doesn't exist anymore. There are no Gotham City industrial chemical factories lighting on fire within city limits really as much anymore because they just straight up don't exist. It was a goofy movie. Yes. And I definitely liked it as a child. But also this movie came out over 30 years ago. Yes. You can throw a rock in Chicago and the person you hit was at least five minutes earlier talking about backdraft. (laughs) Maybe. It's fucking impossible. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. Hans Zimmer did the music. Oh, super producer Brian Tepps just brought up the fact this is the first R movie he was allowed to see in the theaters. Yeah. I think also it might have been, I begged my parents to let me see it. And as per usual, it didn't take much, but I think they did take me to see it in the theater. But definitely my dad was like, yeah, you can rent it. I don't give a shit. Yeah. My uh, neighbor was in this. He was a firefighter. <laughs> oh. And he had the voice of a 911 operator. And uh, he was a real piece of shit. <laughs> so. 
He was like, oh, I'm in back. I was like, that's cool, man. We hate you. Move. <laughs> but there was an element because we lived in Chicago then. And when Backdraft came out, it was like, it was the movie. They filmed it here. Yeah. And, and there was a, a sort of hubbub. This is pre-internet. So on the news, they were talking about they were shooting Backdraft. And Kurt Russell's here. And, oh, you know, Chicago's a big city. But sometimes it turns into a very yeah. small town very quickly. Which is, I respect my dad for this because, like, he loves this movie. We got it for him on, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is one of those movies where you buy your dad on VHS and then the DVD and then the Blu-ray and then whatever the 4K shit is now. Like they did the, all the big hubbub <laughs> that this movie was being made here and coming out. And it's like, my dad's like, how come nobody was like this for Running Scared? <laughs> That's it's a like, good point. Running Scared yeah. is a better movie. Running Scared is a better movie. He's like, I'll go see it. Yeah. But what about Running Scared? It's because Running Scared did not have Brian Grazer literally being like, hey, WGN News, how would you like a million exactly. dollars to talk about this every fucking day? And they were like, we'll do whatever you say, Mr. Yes. Grazer, because Brian Grazer is a secret genius yeah. of how to market a movie. And his father was a pie. <laughs> I'm listening. Um, <laughs> yes, we will have a maybe a, an Imagine Entertainment episode at one point, which I think would be very fun about how those two loons are secretly maybe the most powerful men in Hollywood, but... They don't flaunt it in the same way that other ones do. For Universal, it became a special effects attraction at Universal Studios. There was a backdraft stunt show for a while, if you don't remember, which I only bring this up because Kurt Russell was there when they opened it and he cut the ribbon for it at Universal Studios, which I like. He tried to use the fake flames like a real joint and he never went back. I think a kid, Kate Hudson, was with him at the time and helped him cut it, which I was find very adorable. And budget $40 million, box office one fifty two. not even rentals. Yeah. Couple of big hits in a row, though, yeah. for Mr. Russell, even if mixed reviews. I'm not kidding, though, by the way. I bought that movie for my father on four different formats. A lot of people love it. It definitely got better reviews than any, like, Tango and Cash or any of that kind of stuff. No, these are, this is, it's a real movie. Yeah, Ron Tango Howard. Tango and Cash is. Yeah, had three directors. An abortion on film. <laughs> So following his big success with Backdraft, at least financially, he then takes on a project that he's been working with for a while. He's working with Kevin Jarre, Kevin Jar, not entirely sure (laughs) to pronounce that guy's name, but it was a dude who was a writer friend of his. It was eventually kind of directed by a guy named George P. Cosmatos, who, as you may have guessed, didn't really direct anything after this because kind of got in over his head. However... The movie would go on to be one of Kurt Russell's enduring classic hits. And there's a lot of rumors and a lot oh, of he directed it. allure that he directed. It. It's interesting. We, we'll talk about it, but it's a movie called Tombstone. A lot of people are big fans of it. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, it stars Kurt Russell, Michael Ben, Powers Booth, Dana Delaney, Sam Elliott, <laughs> Bill Paxton, Jason Priestley. Billy Zane, Charlton Heston, and the guy who kind of really steals the whole movie, who really, it's more of a Val Kilmer vehicle Val Kilmer <laughs> than anybody else. I'll be your Huckleberry. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, like Kurt Russell admits he spent so much time like prepping the movie and then taking over as director. Mm-hmm. He sort of forgot to like figure out his character. Yeah. So he's just doing it on screen. So as the, like you can tell in certain shots, he knows exactly who the character is. Other scenes, he's just like, well, I'm chasing you on a horse. (laughs) He definitely was asked about an interview. And the one time he talked about it, he said, I can't really tell you anything truly about what happened because at this point, I don't know what to say, but his great lament was that he was like, 
in my mind, it almost was an unbelievably perfect movie, but because of all of this kind of nonsense that happened with the production and me having to take over a lot of it, in his mind, he still thought it was kind of a fail because he thought it could be even more. But to the average audience, people were just like, it's an awesome movie. What are you talking about? Yeah, but it, there is some jarring kind of like jump aheads in the story and it ends on a montage. Yes. And I hate fucking movies when they do that. Not end on a montage. Right. But there's Not, like yeah. the third act has a lot of montage. Yeah. The screenplay was supposed to be like a huge three hour epic. They peeled it back into a really fun, weird, tight two hours that does have some gaps in it. But because of particularly Val Kilmer and just everybody doing their weird, craziest cowboy, like Michael Ben, you know, Johnny Ringo and Billy Bob Thornton oh, when Billy getting Bob slapped in the face. Hilarious. There's, and then he comes back with his gun yeah. and he, like, he gets it taken away from him. Oh, you may leave now. Yeah. There is so much fun, wild shit in Tombstone. Uh, what? Just general take on Tombstone, Nick. Uh, yeah, it's, I like it. Yeah. Not a huge fan. I think Val Kilmer is amazing. I love Kurt Russell in yes. most things. Agreed. This is one of them. And then Bill Paxton not doing his best in this. Every, I he mean, he comes across as such an aw shucks guy. Like the moment he starts talking, like, oh, he's not making it to the crowd. Oh, no, he's definitely he's going to fucking die. He's got no chance in this movie. <laughs> Look at these stars. You just think, like, we're just down here. God's up there going, we're going to get you killed before the third act. <laughs> also, why is Billy Zane here? He's an entire plot line Billy's, that got cut out. Billy Zane's here because he's the most beautiful man Powers Booth has ever seen. That is true. That Like, the bad guys, they are truly bad guys, but yeah. they are so charismatic. Yeah. Why is it Michael Bean still in movies? He is. He's in stuff. No, why isn't he in movies that, like, people yeah. watch? He was in The Mandalorian. I don't know what that is. <laughs> He was in Baby Yoda, the show. Oh, I've never seen that. Yes. You are aware that some people have seen that show, though. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Like, my fucking dumbass coworker <laughs> had on a Baby Yoda shirt today. Hey, man. And then I look at him, I go, Baby Yoda, huh? And he's like, yes. Yeah, Baby Yoda's And he kept on doing whatever he was doing. I agree with that guy. Grogu is the man. I like when he gets all Jedi, like, tripped out. And he's, like, tripping balls. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, yeah. Tombstone is... Something else. It would spawn a ton of bad 90s Westerns. Westerns were kind of dead in Hollywood when it came out in 1993. There weren't a ton of Westerns happening. They had kind of died out in the 70s and 80s. And Kurt Russell was like, no, I want to make one. I want to make. And in his mind, he wanted to make like an ultimate one, an amazing one, a big budget return. And because Tombstone was decently successful, and particularly, once again, successful more on VHS, they then made a bunch of bad 90s westerns, Wyatt Earp starring Kevin Costner, and I would even say Unforgiven is kind of a cheeseball ripoff of this. Unforgiven came out a year before and won the right. Oscar, so. Tombstone was being made before it, but because of all the production shit, came out after I believe. Yeah, but it still I know. came out first and won an Oscar. Right, agreed. But Tombstone and the fact that Kurt Russell got it together and all these big actors were in it and the fact, it, you know how Hollywood is where once there starts to be a thing, they're, oh, every, they're making a movie about Mars. Oh, oh crap. And then every studio is like, oh, oh, that's the big thing. Everyone wants a movie about Mars. And then every studio makes a movie about Mars, you know, and maybe one of them is good and the rest are crap. 
especially the 90s. That was what happened. They were like, oh, they're, they're making a sci-fi horror movie. We, we have to make a sci-fi horror movie. And yeah, it, it's a fun movie. It's a very fun movie. It's super watchable. For me, it is one of those movies when it comes on, I end up watching a bunch of it because it's so goddamn insanely charismatic. And I'm sorry, but the coolest guy to ever die from tuberculosis is fucking Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday in that movie. I know. Let's have a spelling contest. Any other thoughts on Tombstone, Nick? Michael Rooker? He has no part in it. All, <laughs> you have all these amazing actors. Yeah. All these amazing character actors. Mm-hmm. And then, like, especially like Michael Rooker. He has three lines in the beginning, and then he shows up at the end. Oh, we don't agree with them. We want to come <laughs> and shoot everybody with you now. It's like, why? You have no reason to join forces with them. Where is the rest of your plot line? They just have to include that one line because... There's no fucking reason why it's not just him and Sam Elliott at the end. <laughs> it's true. We are jumping over some movies. I was uh, about to say, if we don't fucking talk about Captain Ron, oh, absolutely. I'm going to set this oh, place on fire. We are 100% going to talk about Captain Ron. I just wanted to bring up Tombstone and this movie because they happened back to back. And literally, it was another thing where it was a big budget movie. And Kurt Russell wanted to stay on and help edit and help finish Tombstone, but he couldn't because he was contractually obligated to make a movie in 1994 called Stargate, directed by Roland Emmerich, starring him, James Spader, French Stewart, (laughs) other people who are in that movie. And uh, I actually really kind of like Stargate. I thought Stargate was sort of fun as shit when I saw it in the theater. And I still to this day watch it. I like the design of it. The music is really good in it. Any thoughts on Stargate, Nick? I like Stargate. I think I would have liked it more if my cousin didn't like it as much. (laughs) Stargate, (laughs) for me, was sort of like, Stargate was the first time I realized me hating someone made me hate what they liked. (laughs) And it would go on to like, I'm having a realization now where I always say, like, when I describe this, I'm like, you know, like Flaming Lips fans, Mm -hmm. because that was a thing. But now I'm realizing, oh, it's Stargate fans. Yeah. Um, not you two, just I don't like my cousin. I don't know if we count it. Like, I like the movie Stargate, but there are, as you said, like legit oh, Stargate yeah. fans, like Stargate SG-1. There's TV yeah, shows. There, there's a spinoff of the spinoff show. Yes, yes. Like, hey, how many hours of the day can you watch Channel 50? And to Kurt Russell's credit. And one more. Who never liked sequels, because this is a bit of a weird moment to bring this up, but he was offered the role of Indiana Jones. He was straight up offered it. And because he was still friends with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, they still liked him. They offered him the role of Indiana Jones, but they were like, you got to make at least a couple of them. And even at the time in the eighties, he was like, I'm not into that, man. I don't want to do that. I don't want to make sequels. And uh, he turned down being Indiana Jones, which once again, I can't really in my mind envision anyone other than Harrison Ford being that, but interesting of, Kurt Russell being Indiana Jones, that's interesting in my mind a little bit. But uh, yeah, Stargate is cool. It's a fun movie. It is absolutely watchable. I think James Spader's fun in it. I think him and James Spader have a nice chemistry. It's definitely the most reserved Roland Emmerich movie. Yeah. His son shot himself in the movie, which I find it interesting that like even 90s popcorn summer movies that there's some dark ass shit. Like his character is going to do this because he doesn't even care anymore. His son accidentally killed himself with his gun. Why is that in this summer movie? 
<laughs> I don't give a shit about anything. I'll kill myself now. I'll sacrifice myself. And then they fight an alien. Eat that, aliens. You want to take over our planet? You like that? Pieces of shit. Any other <laughs> takes on Stargate? All I'm going to say is if you're going to lead with his son got shot in the movie, start with some contacts first. Okay, well. <laughs> I thought you were Contact. saying Kurt Russell's son. No, no. The character in the movie in Stargate before the movie even begins. Well, I mean, you don't have to explain it now. It's hilarious the way it is right. before. And that's why he wears a beret yeah. for the entire movie is because his son shot <laughs> We have to go back, though, because as you said, in 1992, before that, he made a movie that did not make any money at the box office, but has since become another, a master of cult classics, a master of them. I once spent three years telling my mom that on her birthday, all she was getting was Captain Ron. Oh, man. And she kept going, that's funny. Give me a real gift. And I was like, yeah, don't worry. And then three years in a row. She got a real gift. And then the fourth year, she opened it up. I got her this big box, and she opened it up. She goes, look, it's Captain Ron. <laughs> and then I gave her a gift card. <laughs> and she bought things she liked. But, like, I have also purchased this movie multiple times yeah. on DVD. I remember we were at Target, and my dad literally saw it and was like, ooh, Captain Ron, and then grabbed the VHS copy of it. Yeah. And we owned it, and I watched it a lot. And weirdly in that way where – Hollywood has that magic. The personality of Captain Ron has bled itself into me. Very, whether the chicken and the egg thing, was it that I always was going to be susceptible to characters like this? Or I don't know, but I very much so loved that movie and that character. And I like Martin Short a lot. He's amazing in this. (laughs) He is such a fucking neurotic freak. The Pirates of the Caribbean. Been to Disney World one too many times, Captain Ron. And then two... Kurt Russell's credit, he doesn't say it as a joke. He just says it deadpan. He goes, I've never been to Disney World. I've been to Dollywood. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. and it only works as a joke because he says it deadpan because he truly is, yeah, no, I, I've never been to Disney <laughs> And then the Pirates of the Caribbean do rob them, which I find, and yeah. steal their boats. <laughs> and he has an eye patch again. However, this time the eye patch moves from eye to eye, which I always appreciate. <laughs> I love that he, he's just like, he decides to be a Marty Feldman character. In this. <laughs> I couldn't find anything of who he based this character on. I wanted John to know. Carpenter. Do you think so? Yeah. I mean, maybe that sounds right. I showed you this clip going back to the Metrograph thing because mm-hmm. they didn't show Captain Ron the Metrograph. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure it's hard to find a 35 millimeter print of this movie. <laughs> yeah, but, I would imagine. Or easier than you think. It's one or the other. Yeah, <laughs> There's one in this apartment. Um, No, they asked John Carpenter, like, his thoughts about Kurt Russell. And he goes, Kurt Russell, he goes, and I mean this is the highest level of compliment, is an actor who doesn't think. No. He's just like, he just instinctually does it. Kurt Russell has never thought at all on set. He's even said that in interviews where he's said stuff like, I don't really think about stuff before. I just live in the now. (laughs) But if any of his characters are going to say something like, oh, I mean, this is the highest compliment ever. He doesn't think. It's Captain Ron. (laughs) It's Captain Ron. 
If you have never seen Captain Ron, please watch Captain Ron. Watch Tombstone, watch Stargate. I mean, these movies are very interesting. They're fun. And it's interesting, all three of those movies and Backdraft that are all around. And they're very different performances. All of them. They're very different characters. I mean, Kurt Russell is a real deal actor. He has Yes, he's real, a leading man. He's a yeah. character actor. He's a charismatic son of a bitch with great hair. His hair looks great in this. Yeah. At one point, he has cornrows. <laughs> But that almost works because yeah. it's hilarious. He's such a dingus. <laughs> he definitely has like a braid yeah. when they meet him. And he's doing His the classic. Car just drives off the pier. He's got the Daytona Beach classic look of like bad khaki shorts and an open like, Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> so that he sort of looks homeless, but also maybe like a millionaire. It's like a look. I can't describe it in any other way. Also, I have to bring up, in 1994, in Forrest Gump, he once again plays Elvis again. If you anybody remembers the little part where Elvis is there, that's Kurt Russell doing Elvis. So That's my uh, least hated part of Forrest Gump. <laughs> and once again, him and Zemeckis, and Zemeckis was like, hey, you do Elvis pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> in 1996, he is in a movie called Executive Decision. Yes. Directed by Stuart Baird. Yes. Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal gets sucked out in the That's first act. That's why I love this movie. <laughs> oh, man. 15 minutes in, that fucking dumbass Republican in his ponytail gets sucked out into space and just, well, not space, just out in the atmosphere. <laughs> and you just see fucking flabs just flying through the air. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, is that a kimono coming down to crash on us? <laughs> it's so good, dude. It's so insane. The cast, it stars Kurt Russell, Steven Seagal, Halle Berry, John Leguizamo, Oliver Platt, and B.D. Wong. I mean, when you think, this is a when you say action stars, <laughs> we'll give you Kurt Russell. And depending on what his weight was at the time, we'll give you Steven Seagal. Yes. Then you have Halle Berry. Hmm? And then Swordfish. John Leguizamo. Catwoman. Oliver Platt. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Morton, who is yeah. from Terminator. Mm -hmm. I love B.D. Wong. Wong. I love B.D. Wong a lot. I'm glad that B.D. Wong is now finally getting to, like, be yeah. hilarious on Al show and is now finally getting all these awesome roles. He deserved them. Also, um, Andreas Katsoulis, mm. who played the one-armed man in The Fugitive, mm. is in this movie. I'm not sure. No, his character's name is El Syed Jaffa, so he's obviously the bad guy. He's it's vaguely a 90s movie. foreign. <laughs> He's very Greek. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, uh, hey, swarthiness. Yeah. And J.T. Walsh is in this movie again. Oh, yeah. J.T. Walsh is in a lot of Kurt Russell movies. Back then, J.D. Walsh would do anything. If you gave J.D. You said that there was free craft services and, like, scale, he would just show up. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm there. Whatever. Look, <laughs> you made a joke about a kid killing himself. You start talking about J.T. Walsh, you and I are going to fight. All right. Well... <laughs> I will refrain. Uh, budget $55 million, box office $130 million. Wow, good for them. Well, yeah, back in the saddle again. People wanted to go. Also, that trailer is amazing because you never think they're going to kill that fucking leg-can't-bend-his-knee asshole right away. <laughs> and they do. It's amazing. It's amazing. After that, there's another movie that comes out in 1996. This is a bit of the dark time for Kurt. There's a bit of a downturn in the late 90s. Now, for us, this movie is important and is another, once again, cult classic, truly. We watched it on my last birthday. Absolutely. And then I got an infectious thing in my leg and I almost lost it. So I'm <laughs> never watching Escape from L.A. <laughs> on my birthday again. Tsunami snake. 
Tsunami. He finally makes a sequel. He comes back to help his friend, John Carpenter, because John was on darker times at the moment. And it got darker after this for John, too. Oh, yes, I know. But he tried. He tried to help him. He got his first true writing credit where they smoked a bunch of weed. And he was like, what if there was a bunch of, like, guys and they had plastic surgery? All right. I'll write that down. I get a writing credit on this. (laughs) You mostly combed your hair while we were talking. But sure. Any other Escape from L.A. takes since our John Carpenter episode? Well, here's the thing. I don't remember anything I've said in any episode. <laughs> uh, go fair. back and listen to our Wes Craven episode. It's great. When um, Super Producer Brian Tapps played the beginning for me. I've never been so surprised in my life to hear my voice. There is a part of me that wants to say Escape from L.A. is underrated. Mm. And then there's another part of me <laughs> where my brain starts working. And I was like, don't say that. I agree with you entirely that there has that element where Escape from L.A. is both awesome and horrible so at the bad. same time. So bad. Depends on what mood you're in. Yeah. I went and saw it in the $1.50 movies, which was a thing that used to exist in the 90s. I went with my dad and my brother, and we watched it. And then we left, and we said, well, that was that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Super producer Brian Tepps is bringing up the fact that probably the most impressive element of the entire movie is that basketball scene in which Kurt Russell does shoot those shots for real in one take. Yeah. That's him doing the full court shot. Doing the whole thing. Which is also just like the saddest thing you can think of right now where it's like you have a John Carpenter, Kurt Russell movie and the best sequence is the two minutes and a half he plays basketball. (laughs) I remember there was like an Entertainment Tonight segment about it and that was one take. The whole thing where he hits the layup, then he hits the jump shot, then he hits the three-pointer, and then he hits the half court shot. He did all four. He did it all in one take. That's extremely impressive. <laughs> like, however, you are right. <laughs> yeah. That's the best. <laughs> that, that, you, you have, there's a lot of good actors in that movie. Yeah. And then it's just like, yeah, he made those baskets. <laughs> Congratulations. In 1998, or excuse me, 1997, he made a movie called Breakdown. Do you remember that? I fucking love this movie. Really? You like Breakdown? I love this movie. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, I haven't seen it in a while either. It's like if Duel wasn't just two cars driving at each other. Mm. I don't know why I said it like I'm from Bridgeport. Duel. Duel. Um, <laughs> no, like, uh, I love like this. these cars are fucking coming after each other. Yeah, he's this guy in a truck and he's, uh, his wife's gone and, <laughs> you know, whatever. Get on my face. <laughs> it's Breakdown. Breakdown. You ever see Duel? J.T. Walsh. J.T. Walsh. I think this is his last movie J.T. Walsh was in. R.I.P. Yeah. Breakdown's underrated. I can say that wholeheartedly. It was all practical effects, just people driving fucking cars at each other like a bunch of assholes. Basil Pedrulius did the music, who I'm a fan of, did Conan the Barbarian and all kinds of stuff. No, this movie movie kind of fucking kicks ass. Yeah, I agree. That's why I had to mention it. I haven't seen it in a long time, and now I desperately want to watch it again. I'm going to watch Breakdown. Me and Brian Tepp's like a 1998 film directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, kind of his first movie he ever made. It was a box office fail, but I saw it twice in the theater. I liked it so much. It was so weird. It was a movie called Soldier about genetically engineered soldiers from the future, and he's the best one. And then they get better genetically engineered soldiers and literally throw him in the trash, and then he has to fight off the superior genetically engineered soldiers and he beats them with the power of being Kurt Russell. You better watch out other genetically engineered soldiers. It had Michael Chiklis, Gary Busey, Jason Scott Lee, Connie Nielsen, 
And he takes on Soldier Nick. Sucks. <laughs> How dare you? I dare. We're talking about one of the most charismatic actors of all time. Yeah. And then you go, hey, you know what would be great for you this time around? What if you didn't talk? <laughs> and you were just stoic and you made weird faces and mm-hmm. like you just killed a bunch of people. And there's a flashback of you as a kid killing our kids. That'd be mm-hmm. so cool. <laughs> and he's like, sure. Can you cut my hair to look like I'm in... Like Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> he looks like he just grew his hair out for the first time after realizing that the other skinheads he was with were like real Nazis. Yeah. And he was just there because he was straight edge. <laughs> it's true. It is definitely true. It is his first true box office bomb. He had had movies that hadn't done well. Captain Ramen had like a $30 million budget and it made $30 million at the box office. You know, Breakdown had a $40 million budget, made $50 million at the box office. He had a lot of, in his career, break-even movies. This was a $60 million budget and worldwide box office was 14. It is not like, you know, career crusher, but it was... Well, lucky for him, Mm. he followed up with an even bigger bomb. Oh, yeah. 3,000 miles to Graceland. Yeah. This is kind of him morphing into being the character actor that he would become, where he, in certain movies, can still be the leading man, but he works almost a little better being the second bill or third bill or the villain or things like that. Just some of these. He has a small part in Vanilla Sky where he works with Cameron Crowe. Once again, him as a character actor in that. He's a small role in Vanilla Sky. He's in a movie called Interstate 60. Well, real fast. Yeah, He yeah. wanted to, um, after Escape from L.A. and Shoulder, Soldier. <laughs> Soldier. 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 <laughs> he was on the set of Almost Famous because Kate Hudson in it. Yes. This is his stepdaughter. Oh, and yes. he wanted to retire. And then he literally talked, like, he was hanging around with Billy Crudup and Jason Lee and all these young guys watching them act and watching them be really into it. And he like remembered yeah. why he wanted to be in movies mm. in the first place. And like, that's why he's still making movies is because of almost famous. And then he wound up being in the next Cameron Crowe movie after that. That's interesting. And it kind of revitalized his career to then do other stuff. Yeah. In my opinion, because after that, as we were saying, He's in a lot of stuff. He's in a movie called Dark Blue in 2002. Did you ever see that? Yeah, but I mean, that wasn't a big hit. No, it wasn't a big hit, but it's kind of a fun movie. And it's directed and written by his friend, Ron Shelton. I didn't didn't like that movie. I didn't really either. I don't like him as like the Mark Furman type. Yeah, me either. No one goes, you remember the LA riots? What if we put Kurt Russell in the middle of it? (laughs) In Once again, certain zeitgeist in Hollywood in the early 2000s, bad cops were in The Shield and Training Day and bad cops. They're bad, which there definitely are some of those. But I don't know if we need them as anti-heroes. In our movies. In 2004, he comes back. He is the coach of the U.S. Olympic team when they beat those Soviet Union bastards and save America. You like that? You like that? You Soviet fucking pieces of shit. In a movie called Miracle. Any thoughts on Miracle, Nick? I've never seen it. I don't care about hockey. (laughs) But I like that movie because they use part of his speech as a joke. In the canceled sitcom Happy Endings, and I really like that, so I like this. Yes. He, once again, puts in a good performance. Uh, The tagline for that movie is, believe, believe that a hockey team could win one game. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. It was a hit. It made money. 
people like there's still a bunch of weird hockey dudes who worship that movie. Uh, in 2005, he makes a movie called Sky High, where he is a superhero dad. I never actually saw that movie. Did you ever see that? Brian Tufts likes that movie. You like Sky High, Nick? I've been Sky High. Well, that's a fair point. Go check it out. I've never seen it. It's really fucking weird to hear Brian Tapps go. It's a fun kids movie. Well, I don't know. I like that Brian watches that stuff. I appreciate that Brian has a slightly different taste than us and needs to get himself a microphone so that he can. I know. He has a, he has a microphone. I know. I know. He has a thing now. He's just doing it as a thing. Yeah. He made a movie called Dreamer and a remake of Poseidon Adventure called Poseidon about the god Poseidon. That had been cooler. I like that Poseidon remake. Yeah? I mean, not really. It was fun to watch because super producer Brian Tepps loves to watch disaster movies. Mm. Well, this was a disaster movie that was a disaster. Yes. But more than anything, just Richard Dreyfus, <laughs> old man Richard Dreyfus is being pissed off. And I watched the making of it and he was just like, yeah, you know, like I was like, okay, I'll watch this on cable. I appreciate that take on that. I'll watch both Poseidon and Sky High now from your recommendations. But I cut to, because in 2007, it's not the best one, but he teams up with, as he said, he referred to him as his art guru, right? This is from Kurt Russell's own mouth. And he said, I don't know if he's the best director of all time, but he's the smartest director I've ever worked with. In 2007, he is stuntman Mike in Death Proof, where he works with Quentin Tarantino. And in a lot of ways... This would change his career and revitalize his career. It's a big surprise working with Quentin Tarantino, that Quentin Tarantino would see something in you and that is a little bit off of your normal brand, but creates a whole new brand for you as a character actor. And what do you think of Death Proof, at least, Nick? I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, of all, I, yeah. I like uh, Kurt Russell in it. Mm. More than anything, I... Uh, He's a bad guy. He is the bad guy. Okay, here's the thing. This movie does something that I wanted to write into a movie, hmm. but then I saw it. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I didn't get a chance to do that. <laughs> Where you have 45, 50 minutes of setup for the characters, hmm. and then you just kill all of them. Yeah. And then you go on to new ones, and it's just like, oh, okay, that's... I had that idea for a while, and I was like, younger, <laughs> I was like, I always wanted to do that. And then I saw... This movie, I go, oh, that's just a waste of fucking time. Yeah, yeah. And then the movie ends with just like an extended car scene. And then, spoiler alert, just they fucking kick his head in. That's like the end of the movie. Yeah. It is my least favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. However, when I watched it, the thing that I said specifically to myself was, I like Kurt Russell and Quentin Tarantino working together. I really like this. And apparently they did as well. I think of anything that you see in Death Proof, it's that something about those two maniacs works well together, uh, that it has a certain magic to it. There's some movies I've never seen. Cutlass, Touchback, The Art of the Steel. Any of that? Excuse me? <laughs> okay. In, no, none of those. I have to bring this up. It is a documentary, but once again, The Battered Bastards of Baseball that is about him and his father and his baseball career and his father's baseball career and his career and his and how crazy it is. And the whole, it is such a great documentary. It is so fun. It is so interesting. I highly, highly recommend it. That came out in 2014. Do you see that, Nick? 
I have not, no. Please do. It is one of my favorite documentaries. It is wild. In 2015, he got a call from his agent who literally told him, you take this part. I told you to do it. I said, do it. And Kurt Russell was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then Vin Diesel called him and apparently on like a phone conference with him and Paul Walker. And they begged him, begged him to be Mr. Nobody in Fast and Furious 7, a.k.a. Furious 7. And I mean, once again, is Mr. Nobody a bad guy? I don't know. It's a cool idea. It, those movies are dumb, but it's a cool idea for a character. Sometimes he's good. Sometimes he's bad. He's Mr. Nobody. You don't know what he's doing. And it's cool that Kurt Russell is that. I don't know. Sort of fun. But any thoughts on Mr. Nobody or Fast and the Furious in general? None. None at all. <laughs> a lot of people like them. He's back. He's in one of the biggest franchises Fucking in the world. Like movie made a billion dollars. A billion dollars. How the fuck? Man, people love cars blowing up. People are stupid. That is correct. In 2015, he made a movie that I feel is very underrated, a movie I like called Bone Tomahawk. It's a Western that's also a sci-fi horror movie. It's bananas. It's hyper-violent and crazy, directed by a guy named S. Craig Zegler. He was more of a graphic novelist. That was where he started from, and it makes a lot of sense. Have you ever seen Bone Tomahawk? I have not yet. I highly recommend Bone Tomahawk. If you like something dark and weird and different, I think he's great in it. And then he finally gets a real part with his boy, Quentin Tarantino, in the 2015 The Hateful Eight, where he is John Ruth. And Tarantino very famously wrote this whole thing as like a novel and then wrote it into a, a play and then into a script and all kinds of crazy shit. And all along the entire time, Kurt Russell was involved. He was constantly calling him and talking to him and bouncing ideas off of him. And uh, thoughts on The Hateful Eight? Not a fan. Hmm. This is a sort of period of Tarantino stuff that I don't like as much. It's after Sally Mankey dies, so I think the editing gets a little weird. But I really liked him in it. I really liked Kurt Russell in it. And he's very good in it. I just um I am not the biggest Tarantino fan. Mm. First half of this movie was good. Yeah. There's a lot of parts in it where I just like this is stupid though. Yeah. And then the second half was just an absolute uh, waste of time. Needed an editor. and yeah. Needed uh, an editor. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. A lot of good acting, a lot of good set pieces, a lot of, you know. It was cool to see something in the music box on 70 millimeter yeah. that was new. Morricone, too, the music. Yeah. Really well, that's, spooky. This was all the shit from the thing. Oh, Tarantino's not a big nerd of, like, the Morricone music with Kurt Russell, with the snow. No, I mean, the, that like, was, yeah, but those literally, <laughs> those were his leftover pieces from the thing. Yeah. Most of the shit he wrote for the thing didn't end up in the movie. Yeah. And I guarantee Tarantino somehow knew that. Once again, I've listened to a bunch of interviews with Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell brought that up. He talked about how he was asked, he was like, of all the directors that you've worked with, what's the difference between Quentin Tarantino and these other directors? He's like, I've worked with lots of directors who are super smart, Super great, amazing directors. But Quentin Tarantino is an actual savant. He is very spooky. He remembered. He'll talk to me about TV shows I was in as guest stars when I was a kid. I don't remember even making them. And he remembers every single one of them. He remembers them encyclopedically. He, I guarantee, knew that there were leftover pieces from the thing that Marconi didn't use that he then listened to and was like, oh, I got to use this. I mean, it's 
that level of film nerddom. There's no one, according to Kurt Russell, who is a bigger nerd about movies in general. He then, he makes The Fate of the Furious, and then, I like this story too, he says he was literally sitting in his house, he got a call on his landline, which no one called on anymore at his house. He's like, what the fuck is happening? So he picked it up, and a guy named James Gunn, who he had never heard of or talked to, was like, um, hello, Mr. Russell. My name is um, James Gunn, and uh, I'm I'm making a movie, and I would like you to be in it. And he was like, what are you? And he was like, what's the movie? And he's like, it's called um, Guardians of the Galaxy. I made a movie called Guardians of the Galaxy. And Russell's like, yeah, I kind of heard it was like a superhero movie or some shit. It apparently gave James Gunn like a bunch of shit. It was like, why'd you, how'd you get this number? He's like, I thought I should call you first. I didn't want to, he was like, don't call me again. And then <laughs> sort of hung up on him. And uh, then his agent was like, wait, James Gunn called you about a Marvel movie? What are you, what are you fucking talking about? He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what any of this shit is. And uh, <laughs> he wanted him to be Ego, the living planet in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I thought he was amazing in it. I thought that movie was pretty amazing. I like James Gunn. What are you, any thoughts on Guardians 2? I think Guardians 2 is better than the first Guardians movie. I agree. I uh, kind of love it. I think him as Star-Lord's dad is amazing. I thought he was amazing in it. I thought it was a great way to have him in the Marvel Universe. And yeah, if you haven't seen Guardians. And I thought it was cool that James Gunn called him at his house like a... Like some old school shit, like asking the dad if you could go on a date with his daughter. So, like, um, uh, Mr. Russell, uh, could you please read my script? 2018, he makes The Christmas Chronicles, where he's Santa Claus. He would make a sequel of that. Any thoughts on The Christmas Chronicles movies, Nick? Those movies make me wish I was Jewish. That is correct. That is correct. You're, that is the correct one. 2019, though, my first Tarantino movie that I have liked in a long time, and it might be up there for me. My favorites, you bought me the novel version of it for Christmas, which I appreciated, and I really liked it. He plays both the narrator and Randy Lloyd. Jesus Christ, Cliff, you fucking horse's ass. He is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a stunt coordinator and the narrator, which I like very much. Thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's pretty good. I think so. That's a big testament coming from Nick. Yeah. uh, (laughs) You're a good friend. I try. (laughs) Super producer Brian Tubbs likes Deepwater Horizon. I will not put that in the dumpster. <laughs> Maybe I will put it in the dumpster. It's a Peter Berg movie. It's not going to oh, be good. Some Peter Berg movies are good. Some Peter Berg movies used to be good. Yeah. And then he became <laughs> Mr. America. I know. Also, uh, if you make a movie called Lone Survivor, who the fuck's going to watch that? We know how it ends. Yeah. yeah. He then makes a bunch of sequels after that. He makes uh, Fast 8, Christmas Chronicles 2, and Fast 9. And that is... The filmography for Mr. Kurt Russell. We're going to do... It's time for the Blockbuster Film School Dumpster. What is your dumpster pick for our beloved Mr. Kurt Russell? He's made a lot of great movies, but he has also made some movies that are dumpster worthy. It's hard to choose between the one (laughs) of the two I have in my mind, but ultimately... I mean, there's a scene in Tango Cash where Robert Zadak shows up, Robert Zadar, and yes. he's just like, also, it's like, there's so much dude butt in this movie. Oh, my God. In the God. shower scene. And he's just so like, much. So much. It's like, 
what you do to this guy? And Stallone's like, I broke his jaw. And if you don't know who Robert Zadar is, he's only in movies because he has a chin that looks like a fucking hubcap. It's gigantic. <laughs> he looks like he got stung by bees and then they moved in. Um, and Kurt Russell's like, you broke that jaw? As terrible as that is, there's no drink in the native called 3,000 Miles the Graceland. No. If Kevin Costner asks you to be Elvis, you have reached peak Elvis. Stop. Yeah. Yes. Turn around. I agree. And uh, yeah, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> You've nailed it. I would also put Tango and Cash in the dumpster, but I'm going to put Fast 8 in there. It's real stupid. It's next level stupid. Paul Walker is dead, but they were like, let's keep it going. Let's keep it. I understand why they made 7. It was actually pretty fun, but then Paul Walker is dead, and then there's like they're fighting with submarines, but they're outrunning them with Ford Mustangs. I was like, what is what the fuck is happening? Like, it's... <laughs> that sentence you just said... I think my eyes are bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. It's real stupid. That is the fucking dumb. Is that really the movie? Yeah. I have not seen a Fast and the Furious movie outside of like the 10 minutes we try to watch a uh -huh. Fast Five and uh -huh. then Gal Gadot showed up to fucking talk with a bunch of marbles in her mouth. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen a Fast and the Furious movie since Too Fast, Too Furious. And that one was at least Bridgeport fun. edition. At, um, least, at least it was that. At least it was like, yeah, we're street racers. And we're going to steal the money. At least yeah. that has a plot. Now you guys are like international superheroes. What? This is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Those are our dumpster picks. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School Wall. Nick, what's your number three for Mr. Kurt Russell? I am not going to pick any John Carpenter movies because we already did that episode. I agree. I like that. And also, we all know that Snake Plissken and R.J. McCready are two of the greatest characters ever to be shown in a cinema. I agree. I like that as a caveat. I like that a lot. With that in mind, number three is Captain Ron. <laughs> it is the silliest, Ron Rico. fucking moronic movie. My family and I have this line that we've been saying since I was like, because my parents used to go to the store, the video store, to be specific, <laughs> and like rent multiple times the Burbs, Funny Farm, yeah. all these fucking movies. Cat Ron did not make the list, but it fit in the criteria of the two-star classics. And if anything fit two-star classics, it is Cat Ron. This is the only movie that I feel like when it was brand new MVHS was already discount priced. <laughs> and people were like, all right, fine, I'll buy it. Yeah. I remember that VHS box very well. I oh yeah. <laughs> He's like hanging on them and Martin Shorts making a stupid face. Yeah, it's I agree entirely. You know what? With that in mind, my number three is Tequila Sunrise, where he has a where he's the straight laced one. <laughs> I sort of like it. It's so stupid, but the music is so 80s. The Conrad Hall cinematography. If you want something that's just like the 80s-est sexy action movie, it's fun. What was that number? What? What was that number that you just said? <laughs> the 80s? The 80s. The 80s, 80s movie there is. It's Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer's a babe in it. It's great. He plays Nick Frischizia. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> uh, what's your two, Nick? <sighs> Fucking backdraft. Mm. I'm going to do it. He's bull. 
He's Bull McCaffrey. Steven and Dennis. But Dennis is Bull. Yeah. Bull McCaffrey. My God, it's so stupid. They race each other up the stairs <laughs> as a dick measuring contest. Uh-huh. The whole movie is a dick measuring contest. Yeah. And literally he dies in a dick measuring, dick measuring contest, contest at the end. Where he's like, I'm your older brother. He's like, no, don't run into that fire to prove that your dick is bigger than yeah. mine. He'll die. He's like, oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Although that does sound like most of the brothers in the South Side. Do that now. is, <laughs> but there's a uh, more than anything. This movie has a scene where they're just drinking beer on a boat for no reason mm-hmm. in front of Tom Ping Park. Yeah, that's my favorite park in the city. I agree. There's so much classic, awesome '90s Chicago in that movie. That's my favorite part. The only thing that would have made that movie better is if there was a scene where. Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal were driving a car on the L track. Oh, yeah. Or they go on vacation to Key West in the middle of the fucking movie. Yeah. Oh, man. Michael McDonald shows up and they do a song together. God. And then they come back to shitty Chicago and they're like, we're going to move to Key West. And they're like, you got a murder case. They're like, ah, balls. Yeah, you're right. Just watch Running Scared. It's better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My number two is Stargate. I like Colonel Jack O'Neill. Of sci-fi movies that really surprised me as a kid, it's something different. It's something interesting. It's before the ancient alien stuff became a big zeitgeist thing in America. It's really interestingly made. The weird guy from The Crying Game is the alien bad guy, and it's a fun, interesting movie. I've seen it recently. The movie itself still stands up. I think James Spader's fun. Roland Emmerich is kind of a clown, but I think this is his best-directed movie Probably because Kurt Russell saves the whole damn thing. So that's mine. What's your number one, Nick? I am picking a movie that is so confused about what it is. Mm. The soundtrack features Tori Amos, Tool, and uh, Sugar Ray doing new metal. I'm going with Escape from L.A. Yeah! Because (laughs) I have friendships that were entirely built around the fact that we both watched Escape from L.A. every time we saw each other. I'm talking about Needles. (laughs) <laughs> Needles and I, the first 10 times we hung out, was like, do you watch Escape from LA today? Yeah, me too. You want to get really fucking high the rest of our lives? <laughs> I feel honored that I've watched Escape from LA with both of you. Yeah, before. it was, you know, it's a yes. birthday miracle. Uh, but yeah, Escape from LA is complete fucking trash. Yeah. But. Fun trash. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's a fucking great movie star. I agree. Like him, like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like mildly coughing and talking about he's got like an hour to live and shit. It's so silly. But tsunami snake. Oh man. Tsunami. RIP. RIP. Yeah. Uh yeah, I agree with that entirely. It's just when you think you don't like Escape from LA, you do. It's bizarre. Also, Snake Pliskin, truly, he created a character that will last far beyond him. And I love that they haven't redone it. I love that they haven't messed with it. People just like Snake Plissken and he created it. I don't know if it's his best character, but it is his most memorable character. And I'm very glad that you picked it. My number one is maybe his second most memorable, probably a lot of people's most favorite version of Wyatt Earp, but really fucking (laughs) why Ed Bailey, are we cross like tombstone, and just even in that, he directed a guy to be like, now just like cough some, like <laughs> you cough and then pull your gun out real fast. Yeah. Like 
that Doc Holliday has a little touch of Snake Plissken to him, but the way that Val Kilmer does it, where he is such a smug, handsome shithead the entire time. And yeah, like, <clears throat> I'm, oh, I got the tuberculosis gun out. Like, <laughs> that scene where he murder sexes Michael Bean at the end of that movie where he kills Johnny Ringo, spoiler alert, and they don't pan down because you would see his murder boner. I was like, this is the wildest murder scene in a action movie I've I've ever seen. These two guys love each other, but also they are murderous enemies. Something about Tombstone has a just something else. There's something there's a little touch, a little actual movie magic to it. And Kurt kind of directed it and he's good in it as an actor, but I really appreciate that he when he talks about it, he talks about it like it's the thing that he tried to build his entire life. And for him, it didn't work because he was like, I've been thinking of making that movie my entire life. It's real good, Kurt. If you're listening to this, it's real good. Maybe it's not as good as you thought it could be of like the great epics of all time. It's not Citizen Kane that you maybe could have made that if it wouldn't have fallen apart, but it's still funny shit, man. It's still a really good movie. So, well, team, I think we did it. I think we did it. Super producer Brian Tepps. Any other final thoughts on Mr. Kurt Russell, Nick? He has a blow dart in his shoulder pad, reaches into his sleeveless shirt, <laughs> takes it out with his teeth, removes the cap in his mouth, and then miraculously blow darts it into Ash's forehead, <laughs> where he immediately collapses and then falls forward and uses his scalpel that he was about to cut out <laughs> Snake Plissken's eye with to cut the ropes <laughs> and sets him free. Yes. And then he takes him hostage and makes all the little gimpy elves who are working <laughs> as surgery uh, nurses bring him his guns. And then they make some cut loose the lady from Hot Shots uh-huh. so they can escape <laughs> together so she can get shot in the next scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Give us a call, Kurt. <laughs> we want to get high as fuck with you. Also, apparently this screenwriter named Ron Shelton is like his oldest and best friend in Hollywood. Right. And so for years he was telling him all these stories and Ron Shelton wrote a script and apparently at a certain point he was like, will you read this script? And Kurt Russell was like, I don't want to read this script. He's like, dude, this is very important to me. This particular script. He's like, I don't have time, man. And so Ron Shelton turned around and made the movie and he got Kevin Costner to be in it. And it is a movie called Bull Durham in which he just took a bunch of stories from Kurt Russell about Kurt Russell's life and made it. And then when it happened, Kurt Russell was mad. He was like, you stole my life. I told you to read the screenplay. I wanted you to do it. Then Ron Shelton directed Dark Blue. Yes. They stayed friends. Yeah. (laughs) And also when Kurt Russell saw the movie, he was like, all right, it's pretty good. Yeah. And according to Kurt Russell, he said, because Ron Shelton one time asked him, he was like, well, how would you make a baseball movie? And he's like, I would tell it from the perspective of a woman because I don't know if you know this, but at least when I played baseball, all the dudes on my baseball team, we didn't give a shit if a single man showed up in the stadium. <laughs> the entire thing was to impress women. And so I was always curious what women thought about what was going on, because if they were at the baseball game, I wanted to impress them. <laughs> I didn't care what those dudes thought. And I was like, 
<laughs> it's very truthful and very interesting. And then Ron Shelton was like, will you please read my script? He's like, I don't have time for your stupid script, my friend. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I like that story. I just like that Kurt Russell doesn't want to read anything. <laughs> That's also, there's, I get this impression. Yeah. He literally told Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols was like, do you want to read some lines? And he's like, I don't like reading lines with people. <laughs> And then Mike Nichols liked him because most actors would be like, of course, Mike Nichols, I'll do anything you ask me. And then this guy was like, I don't know, man. (laughs) I was out to dinner. It was like a work outing and everyone's there and we were having some drinks and they're like, it was real quiet. And then someone goes, all right, I got to ask, why did you hire Nick? And the owner goes, oh, she just seen him in the interview. I've never met someone that didn't care if they got the job or not. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it works, man. Yeah. Sometimes it works. He's a Pisces. <laughs> well, team, that was our take on Mr. Kurt Russell. If you like our show, which if you're listening at this point, hopefully you do. And this is not just a hate listen. We are on Instagram at Blockbuster Film School. Please follow us. Please check us out. Like and subscribe. All that jazz. We love you guys very much. Thank you for listening. I'm Alex Bonner with Nicholas Souter. There's a chance that if it's still playing, they probably just fell asleep. That is also possible. But that means autoplay might be on, so they might play another episode. Keep so it going. Keep- I encourage all the listeners to fall asleep during the episode <laughs> and then play it again later <laughs> where you started. Yeah. Give it just listen after yeah. listen. Just keep it running. Start it, fall asleep, mm-hmm. wake up, start it over where you left start off. It again. Quiet. Eh. Not, not if you're listening on Spotify. <laughs> listen on Spotify. Listen on anything you like. Us. We're on all the big ones. Thank you, Super Producer Brian Tepps. You're doing a great job. You're a fabulous human being. We care about you very much. Do drugs. Have a good time. We'll see you guys next week here at the Blockbuster Film School.